once came another man who... Style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young, a superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical moments. And I felt be down in flames. My style. My style skills. Welcome to the Chess Underground. The April 2020 show was initially slated to be a recap of the recently concluded, or what would have been the recently concluded. 2020 Candidates Tournament. However, as many of our listeners are already aware, the Candidates Tournament was cancelled at the halfway point due to concerns over COVID-19. As a result, we'll examine the final results of the Candidates Tournament once it concludes, which may occur sometime later this fall. Instead, we'll kick off Season 2 in April, a season which I have titled Tournament Life, echoing what many of our listeners who are familiar with U.S. Chess will remember as both the Tournament Life Announcements page on our website, as well as in Chess Life. We will examine all of the aspects of tournament life, from directors, to players, to organizers. I can't think of a better way to kick it off than with our inaugural guest on Season 2, Bill Broich, who is an international arbiter and national tournament director. here today with Bill Broich from Iowa, who I will let introduce himself. Thanks, Pete. Um, my name is Bill Broich, and yes, I am a national tournament director and an international arbiter. Um, a little bit about my personal life. I grew up in Lakeview, Iowa, which is a small town northwest Iowa. Uh, I didn't go to college until I was 34, and I went to college uh, um, upper Iowa campus here in Des Moines. And uh, aside from chess activities, <laughs> I, oh, I, I'm an uh, insurance company analyst for the state of Iowa, and I've been with them for about 20 years now. Prior to that, I did all kinds of other jobs, including uh, I was a truck driver, I was a, a Schwann man, if people know what that is. It's a person that sells frozen food, drives a truck around and goes... I was going to ask, did you get to drive the cool uh, big yellow Schwann truck? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I did that in, in northern Missouri. South I Texas. think that's like an icon in the Midwest. I wonder I wonder if they have Schwann in other parts of the country. Oh, they do. They do. They do in Florida. Well, I think they're in the lower 48. Okay. All right. Well, Bill, thanks for sharing a little bit about yourself. Um, I don't want to bury the lead with this one. I... I know we spoke pre-show, and I am absolutely fascinated to hear your story about meeting world champion Boris Spassky in a hotel room. Is that right? Correct. So how, how did this come about? Where, where did this start? Uh, a friend of mine, Dr. John Quinn, here from Iowa, he's also a chess enthusiast, um, helped set this up. And um, I'm not sure, really sure how he did it. I, I think Lev Albert was uh, instrumental in helping him put this together. 
And uh, Boris was, this was 19, or two, 2004 in Reno, Nevada. And the Western States... 2000 fe- 2004 feels like it's so long ago now, we might as well start with 19, right? <laughs> right. It was at the Western States Open in uh, 2004. I went out there. John and I flew out there. Uh, we met his brother from California was there. And... Um, well, Boris was Spassky's brother or John John's brother. John's brother. Okay, gotcha. Um, uh, Boris was there for the tournament, Western States Open. He did a simul. He had something going about three days in a row, and uh, John was able to convince him to spend an afternoon with us in uh, in a hotel room, and we. Played some games, and uh, John's games, I think, were rated. Mine, mine were not. Uh, <laughs> you saved yourself a few rating points. I think. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I have to say, he is one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. He's just uh, easy going. It's like your grandpa or something. He's just, he's really a charming guy. His big smile on his face. Um, he just puts you at ease immediately. You know, he, you're kind of, oh, you're kind of nervous when you meet these people. Or Yeah, I, I imagine you would be, right? I mean, how, how many opportunities do you get to sit down with a world champion, let alone play him a few games, right? Right, right. Well, my games were, were speed games, five-minute games. John played a couple, I think uh, he played a couple games, and I think each player had 30 minutes. But... Uh, uh, yeah, the thing that struck me right away was how at ease he put you. I mean, you you were no apprehension whatsoever. Like I, it's like being with your grandpa or your favorite uncle or something. And <laughs> he just, I mean, he made it so easy. And uh, he talked about some of the world champions. He he really liked uh, Paul Morphy's games. He said those are good games to go over. Mm. He's a good friend with Bobby Fisher. He was a good friend all the way up to the end. And uh, we talked about a lot of chess players. He never said anything bad about anybody. You know, one of the things that I remember about Spassky in particular was you mentioned Fisher. There was a time actually not too long before 2004 when uh, Fisher was um, arrested and they were going to potentially extradite him. And I remember Spassky wrote a letter to George Bush on Fisher's behalf. Do you remember this story? Yes. Yes, he did. did, you, did he, I, I'm curious. Did he talk about that at all? He, not only did he talk about it, he brought a copy of that letter for my friend John. And Really? Yes. He bought, brought a copy because I really, I mean, it was within a week or so when he did that. So mm. uh, that was October 15th, 2004. Right. And I, I believe that was... You're right. That would have been the same year, roughly, when Fisher was 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 arrested. I believe it was in Japan, right? Yes. Wow. Wow. So, apart from the the Fisher stories, I, I assume you you played some games. Did it give you some match commentary too? Oh yes, yes. And uh, he showed us some some of his favorite um, problems, you know, and and mm-hmm. uh, he showed us lots of things. Uh, oh, yeah, he talked about the games, and uh, his wife was there. She was really nice. 
and uh, he told stories. I can't remember which, you know, no particular story sticks out. Mm. Um, we, we had a bottle of, uh, <laughs> what the heck was that? Crown Royal. We had a bottle of Crown Royal. And we finished it, the three of us. And uh, no good, no good world champion story can conclude without a <laughs> without a bottle of Crown Royal involved, huh? <laughs> right. And and John said, "Well, what was your favorite part?" And I said, "Well, it had to be the toast. We had a toast uh, when we, you know, but we didn't have any. We didn't have any whiskey before we played. We waited for right. You have to. You have to play business first." <laughs> You got to play the the games in a competent fashion, I suppose. <laughs> it wouldn't make any difference. Well, to be fair, I do believe if John was playing rated games, U.S. Chess has a rule against handicapping oneself. Um, so <laughs> it would seem <laughs> that perhaps this might apply. Yeah, I I know I played the Sicilian and I got crushed in like eighteen moves, which is pretty normal for me. <laughs> so nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing out of the ordinary. No. I have to say, you know, you're probably one of the few people I know who can say, you know, I met a world champion in a Nevada hotel room and, and polished off a bottle of Crown Royal with them. <laughs> yeah. Then his wife came and said, uh, I better get Boris out of here. He's having too much fun. And <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And he played in, and he played in the, in the Western States Open too, correct? No, I don't think he played. I think he just gave signals. I, I really don't know if he played. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that story, Bill. Um, I know, you know, one of the one of the main things that I wanted to have you on was to talk about your journey as a tournament director um, and to go from club tournament director starting out to national TD international arbiters is quite a process. What motivated you or got you interested in directing tournaments in the first place? Well, I... When I first started playing, I realized you'd have to play a lot of tournament games to get better at this. And True. I thought, well, it's not that hard to be a tournament director. So I I, I, I think it was... <laughs> so, Little did you know, right? It, it's not hard to get your uh, your certification, let's put it that way. You could, I think at right. that time you could be a club director just by signing a piece of paper that said you read the rule book. That remains the case. Yeah, you can start off with just having a rule book, signing a piece of paper that says you have it and read it, and you're good to go. So we'd get, for quads, is basically why I did this, is we'd have quads, and, and I would be the tournament director. Not a big deal. And then uh, I probably did that for 10, 15 years. Part of the time I went was going to college, so I didn't play a lot. And then right. it, it, it dawned on me that we didn't need another 1400 class C player. There's, there's plenty of those, but we did need somebody to run tournaments because, uh, at that time, uh, Roger, Roger was the only one running adult tournaments. I think Mark, no, Mark Capron was active. No, this is, this is in Iowa. So let me add some context here for our uh, listeners. This is in Northern Iowa. We're talking about Roger Gottschall, correct? Correct. Uh, yes. Yes. Ames. Okay. Former state delegate, I believe also a national TD or a very, very high level TD himself. Very experienced, but yeah, he, no, he senior was his designation. Okay. Got it. So Roger was the only one running events in that area at the time. 
for the most part, Mark Capron ran a couple in Iowa City every year hmm. at, the, at the University of Iowa. You know, I think a lot of directors start off this way where there's just a dearth of opportunity to play because of a lack of organizers, lack of organizers and directors. And, you know, in the United States, directors have to also be organizers, right? There's not so much of a, of a, a line of delineation for the duties, right? You sort of do both. You, yes, you do both. And what we do after we we after we started having some quads, we were playing at people's houses. Um, then we started playing in a high V, and we got the, we got the space for free. So then it started to grow to sixteen, maybe twenty players, and we'd do this every month. Were they still quads at this point, or was it more of just like an open? It, yeah, it was an open. Okay, but it wasn't advertised very. You know. It was, Mostly just Des Moines players, club players. Mm. But it grew out of that, yes. So at one point, um, yeah, I decided to be uh, work towards a higher certification level. So I contacted Jim Houdino, was the, and Jim was the senior TD, I believe, at the time. But he was running scholastic tournaments. So I helped him with several scholastic tournaments. And uh, those scholastic events were drawing over 50 players. so Which is the requirement that, that you need to move up to senior. Yes, yes. You have to have, I, I don't recall the exact number, but you had to have at least five tournaments where you were either the senior TD or the uh, chief TD or the assistant chief. And, uh, oh, we were at that time. We were running five tournaments, scholastic tournaments a year, and we were drawing between fifty to a hundred, and we had three or four go over. So uh, the, that helped get the credits towards senior TD for sure. Now, was this? I know uh, Mr. Hadina is in primarily Cedar Rapids. Was this? Did you travel to run these events, or were they throughout the state, or how did that work? Well, they were in Iowa. Most of them are in eastern Iowa, which is about an hour and a half from where they were in Iowa City, and I, I'm in Des Moines. That there's about an hour and a half drive there. Mm-hmm. I, I remember one time Jim and I had uh, our computers. The the uh, what do I want to say? The computer bags were exactly the same, and I picked up his bag one time, got home, and and. Uh, I said, Jim, I think I've got your computer. <laughs> so I, uh, we met halfway the next day and, and exchanged computers. So but that never happened again. I suppose out of the many things that could go wrong in the life of a TD, that's probably not the absolute worst. <laughs> right, right. There's been a number of things go wrong. You know, what? I'm curious, what would you say? This is a question that I'd like to ask all of the TDs and having been a TD myself and worked as an organizer, a coach, a director, you know, there's, there's things that stick out in your memory. What was the most difficult situation you've been in as a director? One of the most difficult situation I was in, uh, certainly on the local level is, um, I ran out of ink. <laughs> so not, like, not, a, not a problem at the board, not a problem between players, but just no ink. No ink. That's right. Well, as a TV, yeah. We did, so we had to write it out by hand. And uh, 
So that was, well, it's embarrassing more than anything. I mean, here it is, the first round, and you realize that uh, you have to look at the screen and record everything by hand. Oh, no, yeah. And post by hand as well, right? Right, right. So are you one of those... Uh, are you one of those old school TDs? Did you ever pair by hand or have you always used like a pairing software? I've always used pairing software. Mm -hmm. Now, Roger Gottschall trained me or tried to train me using the pairing cards. Right. But I didn't see any real reason to know that, but uh, I should have. <laughs> and the, the uh, what is it? Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Right. I mean, I think I could do it, but uh, not with confidence, and it, there'd be errors, I'm sure. You know, that's how I was uh, was uh, was trained and learned how to do it, was with pairing cards. And I actually paired my first two tournaments. Um, I think that included one I ran up in Ames, Iowa, by hand. And that was fun, I actually. You know, I, I think a lot of the players... Um, Nobody contested any of the pairings. I think a lot of the players thought it was unique and uh, kind of a kind of a strange experience, I suppose. But it would be okay for a small tournament, twenty or less. You, that that would be fine. Yeah, that would be fine. On the show in January, we had uh, Garrett Scott, and he described trying to pair the U.S. Open in the nineteen seventies. Now, if you can imagine, back then there was no pairing software. Um, so they had to pair every section or ever uh, it's the open, right? So there's one section, but they had to pair the entire U S open by hand. And the way they did it was they broke it down into board number sections, you know, and one TD was responsible for a certain score group, which re correlated to a, a certain board number section. But honestly, I can't imagine trying to pair a tournament that large without, you know, a Swiss SIS or a, a win TD. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know how they could do it. <laughs> and they did it that way for forever. Right, and probably tournaments larger than the U.S. Open too. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure they did. That's a nightmare. There, that that would be the ultimate nightmare. <laughs> pairing a tournament. Could you imagine pairing super nationals by hand? Well, that'd be horrible. <laughs> TD that so so Bill I'm going to suggest a suggest a memoir to you TD nightmares running out of ink and pairing by hand a memoir <laughs> yeah. uh, well, there's a, there's been some difficult people over the years but not too bad not too bad so I don't want to yeah I certainly don't want to pin you to the spot and ask you to name names but what about like a, a player you know I've heard some really weird cases, you know, issues with the clock, issues with who knows what, you know, a guy turned his rook into a knight. What, what's the weirdest or strangest player interaction you've had as a TD? Oh, that would be, that would take a little while. I, I, had, I, did, I did have a guy <laughs> who uh, was game 75 with uh, probably a 30-second increment. And he gets down to literally one or two seconds and stops the clock and says, my clock is not set right. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you wait, you, 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 well, he said, well, neither one of us noted, uh, noticed. And I, well, I couldn't say he was lying, mm. but, uh, and his opponent had set the clock. And this gentleman was, was, well, he was elderly. So we made a calculation and, and put some time back on the clock. But 
Uh, I don't think that's what the rules said. <laughs> I, know, I know it didn't said that, but I felt bad for the guy. And How did his opponent take it? He was fine. He was fine. Um, that's another thing. Most Most players are fine. They're not, I mean, they don't get upset. Um, I've had a few, of course, and then every once in a while, I've been known to get upset. <laughs> <laughs> as the TD or as the player? Oh, as the TD. Mm-hmm. As the TD. Um, there's not been that. That was kind of strange. And of course, kids—they're—they're they're always asking questions and and trying to explain things, and you're trying to figure out what they're saying, and that can get kind of comical. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I remember, um, I think I told this, told this story before actually, but I remember a case where I was TDing a scholastic event and I arrived at the board and one of the kids was cli- trying to make a checkmate claim, but both Kings were in the pile of captured pieces. So how would you handle a situation like that? Now <laughs> go over that again. <laughs> okay. So I arrive at the board. Yes. One of the one of the players, one of the kids. This was in, I, I think the kid was probably a second grader, if I had to guess. Okay. I don't think it was the K one section. Uh, it was a local event here, and he had his hand up. I came over and he was trying to make a checkmate claim. He was trying to say that he checkmated his opponent. Right. But neither king was on the board. Both of the kings were in the pile of captured pieces on the side of the board. <laughs> Well, so what what would you do in that case? You would go back to a time when both kings are on the board. Go back <laughs> to the last legal uh, last legal position. But Bill, this this is second grade. We don't have notation. I I, I think you call it a draw. <laughs> I don't know what else you could do. I made him. I made him replay the game. Well, yeah, you could re- I don't know if that was if that was uh, exactly correct. You know, this is the funny thing about TDing, and I'm I'm curious to hear your take on this as an experienced TD, an international arbiter, a national TD. It does seem like sometimes, in some cases, you know, and you described one with the elderly gentleman um, where you felt it was appropriate, but it does seem like. At some times, there's a little bit left up to the TD discretion. You know, there there can be a little gray area, and you have to make a call. Right. How do you you know how do you do that? How do you personally navigate that? Well, um, with kids, if you're de- if you're working with second graders, you know that that gives you some leeway and and try and teach them something. But uh, um, oh, I would say the more serious the tournament. Um, and the more serious the players is where you really have to get it right. Now, sometimes like uh, that situation with the clock, I announced what I was going to do. And uh, by the way, I couldn't find it in the rule book at the time. And then it turns up in an addendum that I didn't have with me. So you should always have the addendum with your rule book. Um, so, so advice from there you go, everybody. Advice from an NTD slash international arbiter. Make sure you have not just the rule book, but all addendums. <laughs> all addendums. So I explained to the players what I thought would remedy the situation, and they both agreed. And they, you know, they were they were good guys, and I knew them both, and there was not a problem. 
And and I think they're a little bit ashamed of themselves. <laughs> they played the whole game and they didn't realize the clock was set wrong. And uh, especially with the thirty second a thirty second increment, that I just thought was very strange. Right. Think? I mean, you you would think that you would recognize if it's an increment and especially a sizable increment. Sure. Um, you would think you would figure that out pretty quickly if it's not registering. Absolutely. But you know what? I'm wondering if you've had this experience too. I do notice, and I'm very good friends with, for that matter, some players who, when they sit down at the chessboard, man, they just have tunnel vision. You know what I mean? Oh, I they, they just see only the board, only the pieces, and nothing else. Nothing else. Yeah. yeah. There's quite a few players that way. But to be uh, fair, I kind of wish I could be that way. <laughs> you know, feel like I'd play better. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, you know, you, you see players that get up after a long, difficult game, and it's like they can't even find their way out of the room, you know, they're just, they're lost, and uh, they've been concentrating so hard so long that they're they're really delusional, almost. Right. So, Bill, I know recently, um, I believe it was last year, correct me if I'm wrong, you helped out at a national event that we ran. It was the, um, was it the K-12 or was it the elementary? It, it was the elementary in Nashville. In Nashville. Okay. Now, was that the first ever U.S. Chess official national event you've worked? No. Um, okay. I helped with Super Nationals. I can't recall which year it was, but I helped with Super Nationals. Was it the most recent one? Probably 2017? No, it was, uh, I believe, the one before that. Okay, 2013. Yes. So what's what's your impression uh, of a national event from the perspective of a director? It's an awful lot of work. It is an <laughs> awful lot of work. And mm. uh, you take your, if you're not on duty, take off your jacket or you'll be answering questions. <laughs> They'll follow you to the room. Um, so it's, it's just a lot of work. It's, it's chaos. Um, it's fun. But boy, it's, you wear, I just get, get so worn out that uh, uh, your feet hurt, everything. It, it's, uh, it's pretty nerve wracking. You know, one of our sticking points, sort of a look behind the, the scenes here um, in terms of what we look for booking a national event is for the sake of the TDs, we've got to have carpet in the playing hall so that oh, the, the pain on your feet and knees and everything else is, is minimized as much as can be. Um, what, what about a national event from your perspective? You know, I mean, there are some obvious answers here, right? But what are the, the big takeaways in terms of differences between that and, you know, something you'd run at the local school, college, hy if you will? Well, you're dealing with kids you've never seen before and probably never will again. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, with our state scholastic events, we pretty much know the kids. At these large national events, you even have to deal with coaches. And uh, I've not had any problems. But it's just a whole different setting, for sure. Everything's amplified. Um, well, there's just so many things. But all, all of it has to do with you, the population is so much larger. And uh, 
but it's remarkable how well these things go. Uh, it's hard to believe how well things go at Nashville to get all those kids to the right board and it's quiet to start the round. It's pretty amazing. You know, that was my impression too at my first nationals was the, you know, the, the running of a tournament almost feels like a, like a machine, you know, or maybe, maybe an, an organism, just all the moving parts and getting it just right can be quite a challenge, but somehow we pull it off um, in terms of finding, finding where you need to be. You know, I, I'm sure you've had this experience. How many times have you had to, even at just a local event, point a kid to the right board? Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. Well, the kids that come to national, they're they're able to find their board and everything. I mean, they're not they're not your normal chess kid, I don't believe. But uh, oh, kids that have been in their first tournament, they can't find the board. They they don't. <laughs> They don't know how to read the pairing chart. They, and, and, you know, that just all comes with time. Right. That's true. You know, you bring up a good point there. One of the advantages that we have at a national event is a large number of the players are, um, I don't know if I want to call them seasoned veterans, but a little more experienced, right? They know what to look for. They know where to go. And they have, a, you know, it's highly unlikely you'll have a situation at nationals like the one I described where you're looking for a checkmate with both kings in the captured piece pile, right? Right. So it's a, right. <laughs> it's a very different environment. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. These kids that at the if they're in a national event or super nationals, they know what they're doing. That's not to say they may get. Yeah. You know, they're going to make illegal moves and they're going to do things they're not supposed to do, but they know how to read the pairing chart and get to the right table and the right board. Right. Right. And when you've got a room full of boards, I mean, hundreds, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. Just that, just getting to the right board. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. So, you know, Bill, I am curious for, for the layman out there, for the listener who wants to know a little more about your accomplishments, let's talk about it from the FIDE side. I, I think if I'm a club TD, you know, just wanting to get into maybe even working with FIDE events, uh, I think a lot of people out there wouldn't even know where to start. So how did you get on this path to becoming an international arbiter? And could you kind of walk us through that a little bit? Sure. Um, I was at the Minnesota Open, and I, I can't remember what year it was. I think it was in 2000. Okay. And Dr. Amara Singh, Cicero Amara Singh, who ran a lot of tournaments in the Minneapolis, Twin Cities area, um, asked me, well, how would you like to be a, a V-Day arbiter? And I'm like, sure, why not? <laughs> so uh, I started looking into it because um, he, he was, he's originally from Sri Lanka. Okay. So he knew more about the V-Day rules and everything. Now, is this uh, Dr. Amarasin? Yes. Okay. So he, he knew more about Sasira the Amarasin, right? I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. I think it's pretty close. Yes, I believe so. I think you're right. Um, yeah, he knew he knew more about the fee day rules and stuff, and uh, and he he was the one to get me interested in it. And uh, well, first of all, you have to be a senior TD. Right, that's the minimum requirement. Correct. Yeah, that's the minimum requirement. And at the time, I wasn't. So that was the first thing I focused on was getting uh, my senior. 
TV certification. And uh, CISRA helped me uh, get involved with the fee day, um, on the fee day path, I guess. So I went to Minnesota and helped him with three or four tournaments. Uh, I went, he lined me up with the uh, fee day arbiter seminar in the Chicago area. And I had no idea what I was doing and didn't even come close to passing. (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay because I got exposed to it. Right. And, uh, and, and, uh, now getting the credentials. Well, I've worked several tournaments. I worked several tournaments and I ran fee day tournaments and, uh, it was, it's a lot different in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rules aren't all that much different, but, um, <laughs> it's just, I don't even know how to explain it. You, you feel like it's much more, uh, I can't find the word right now, more prestigious. Okay. And I don't know that it is, but it, it feels like it is. And, and when people in those days, people heard fee day, wow, this is, can I play? Well, sure. Uh, but we did restrict it to players that are at least 1600. So when did you, when did you actually, what year did you become a fee day arbiter? 2015. Okay. All right. Yeah. You know, I've, I remember in the early 2000s, back when I was in college, it was almost impossible to find a fee day tournament to play in, in the States. I mean, you had to travel the the major events counted. Most of them had a fee day section, but that was pretty much it. You know, the, the CCA major events, and I think that was about it. So finding those uh, alternatives, you know, especially in a state like Iowa, a smaller state, was very difficult. It was very difficult for a long time. Right. And a lot of the Iowa players, and you were probably one of them, went down to Oklahoma to play in Frank Berry's uh, P-Day tournaments. That's right. I was, I was one of them. Um, and that was sort of the exception to the rule, you know, finding an independently organized FIDE event that wasn't one of the major, you know, world open, Chicago open, et cetera, was hard to do. So I, I, I actually felt a little lucky that we had those events run by the Berry brothers. Otherwise, you know, in the, the central to Western Midwest, there wasn't a whole lot to do in terms of FIDE stuff. Right. Well, when I talked to Cicero, he said, well, um, there's a, there's a, a desire for people to play in fee day events. And he was looking for people that wanted to become a fee day arbiter. And that's mm-hmm. how I got started. So, uh, and then I, I, you need to get credits. And I went to Oklahoma and worked for uh, the Barry brothers. Sure. I worked for Bill Goichberg in Chicago. Uh, uh, Frank Guadalupe gave me all kinds of options. And I, I probably went to Texas three, four times. I, I helped with the uh, Pan Am. Uh, mm-hmm. That wasn't that wasn't V Day rated. Now these are uh, credits for moving up to international arbiter. Is that correct? Yes. Now, as I understand it, that's pretty stringent. There's quite a few requirements for that. Well, you you need to be a senior TD. It's gotten a lot tougher, I believe. Okay. It's gotten a lot tougher in that now, I guess, you can't get credit. They have to, when I did it, a weekend Swiss, 
that was fee day rated, you went and worked, and, and that was a credit. Okay. And it needed like 20-some players. Now, that would get you a credit for a title, but that, that was uh, uh, get you experience. Sure. And then uh, you had to do help with bigger tournaments. Now, I'm kind of... <laughs> Kind of at a loss for words here. Um, to get title, to get to get a FIDE title, FA, mm-hmm. FIDE Arbiter, now you have to take an exam. Right. When I did it, you didn't have to okay. take an exam. You only had to take an exam to become... Uh, international Arbiter. International Arbiter. Right. And those were pretty tough. They had to be norm tournaments. Just to qualify to take the exam, you had to meet these credits, right? No, no. All you need to take the exam is to be a senior TD. Really? For the IA exam? No, for FA. You have to be an FA first. Oh, okay. No, I was talking about international arbiter. To, to move from FA to IA, there's a process of events you have to attend, right? You have to work at, you have to achieve credits, and then you can qualify to take the exam. Is that, is that a correct description? No, no. You take the exam. Um, you take the exam to to be an FA. Mm-hmm. Right. They they change it a little bit, but there is no exam to move uh, from FA to IA. Is it purely experience based? It's purely experience based, and um, you have to do two different kinds of tournaments, like team tournaments. Mm-hmm. They pretty much have to be norm tournaments uh, because they have to be. I think. Well, I think they all have to be nine-round tournaments now. You can do some uh, round-robin-type tournaments. Sure, as long as there's a norm qualification. There has to be a norm qualification. Right. And you can't do, like, five uh, five round-robins. You have to do a Swiss. You have to do two different types of tournaments. So how long did it take you, you know, working and, and being a TD in the, in the Midwest to work your way to International Arbiter? Uh, probably about 12 years. Wow. Wow. So it was about 12 years. And, um, I did it in such a way, <laughs> looking back, uh, I kind of worked tournaments. I know that I would get a credit for. Right. And well, I got on the phone and called people mm-hmm. and said, Hey, can I come and work this tournament? And I didn't get paid for a lot of those or some of those, but that was, that was the way I did it. That's how I got my foot in the door. Sure. As I just say, hey, I'll come down or I'll help you. But uh, it's difficult. It's difficult in the Midwest, but it's getting easier. Now, on the East Coast, of course, you've got a lot of fee day tournaments. Right. More opportunities. Oh, a lot more opportunities, yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I did several tournaments uh, with Frank Guadalupe at, the Univer- at UT Dallas. Okay. Say, or I don't know, at least three or four, at least three or four. And um, I remember after working there the first time you you would go to other tournaments or run your own tournaments. And it was it was just not that much fun because UG uh, Dallas, they've got everything. I mean, they've got all, they've got the DGT boards. They, I mean, it's just so cool. And then you right. come back and, and <laughs> you know, they've got a room full of IMs and GMs. And then you come back and go to Hy-Vee and, and run a <laughs> tournament. Uh, 
the local 16 players at the high B don't don't feel quite the same. No, it's not quite the same at all. It is not anywhere near the same. And uh, but that was a fantastic experience. So, would you say those UTD events were your favorite tournament you've worked, or is there another one that sticks out? Well, those were probably the favorite tournaments that I worked. Mm-hmm. I I did work the Millionaire Open and uh, okay, up in uh, Minneapolis, right? No, no, out in Las Vegas, the Millionaire. Oh, right. I was confusing that with the uh, there. There was another one in Minneapolis that had a very large prize fund which I'm not remembering the name offhand. But okay, sorry, go ahead. So the Millionaire Open in Vegas. The Millionaire Open in Vegas was a really quite a unique thing for me. Um, I went there and I didn't realize that the, uh, I, was, I worked as an arbiter in the open section, top section, and I didn't realize, uh, I didn't even think about tie breaks. So we get into tie breaks, and they were rapid games. And, I mean, my, I was real iffy on the FIDE rules for rapid and blitz because I hadn't done many of those. And I was working with some other people, and, I mean, I was torn. I, I didn't want to do it. I did not want to be uh, a TD for these rapid games. I mean, I was pretty much afraid to do it. Was it because of the, the enhanced pressure of the, the time control? Well, I was a little unsure of the rules, even. Okay. Because there's a lot of different. I mean, there's differences between rapid and your normal feeding. Mm. And uh, so my colleagues that I was working with, and they know who they are, they talked me into doing it. And um, the first assignment I get is Hikaru Nakamura versus uh, Gattacamsi. <laughs> <laughs> the week before... Uh, was Nakamura's two-handed castle. Oh, yes, I recall that. That was, I think, in a game with Nepomnishi, right? Well, I'm not sure about that, but if I recall correctly, it was, it was uh, what's the, uh, oh, I can't think of it. I want, I want to say the World Open, but it's not the World Open, but it's one of those no. tournaments. Yes, I know what you're talking about, yeah. And, and, uh, and the rule was incorrectly applied, right? He wasn't, uh, he was not... Um, I guess sort of punished is the right word. I'm not sure. According to the rules, correct? That's the right word. I, it did, I mean, the whole world is watching, and there and there's arbiters standing there watching him do this, and um, nobody did anything. And that's what came to my mind. Now you know, if somebody does something, you have to intervene. And right. uh, when you're at the Millionaire Open, there's there's cameras everywhere. And it's just kind of, uh, it's just, it, it's, it's just a thrill to do it. And uh, so after the first game was done and nobody made any errors, then I kind of relaxed and there were no incidents. <laughs> uh, so after you got thrown right into the frying pan with, with Nakamura and Kamsky, <laughs> things were okay. And there was like a, there were, if I recall, it was eight or nine players that tied for the fourth spot for, for the, for the Monday event. So these guys were all competing for that last spot. And um, um, so they, they had, had a, a complicated playoff for that. The um, Monday, the final four, and I was relieved <laughs> because that's a lot of money. 
and uh, things happen when, when you do blitz and rapid, not so much in rapid, but they happen so quick. It, it just, I can see where it would happen like uh, that happened at that time with Nakamura at that big tournament because he probably wasn't thinking about it either. And everybody, and several people are watching it. Nobody catches it. It's, it's right. like, how could that happen? Things happen quick. You know, you're right. I mean, in those in those faster time controls, rapid and blitz, there have been a few high profile cases where, it, you know, nobody catches it somehow. You know. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised there's not more of them. Right. Right. Well, Bill, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing your stories, and especially um, sharing your knowledge about the journey of the TD and what that's like. So I thank you, and I, I, I look forward to um, talking with you again in the near future. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, you're welcome. Take care. Yeah, bye. Bye. From a distance. Tactical struggle. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for our podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis.